0: called Overflow. And we have been talking about uh, kind of our process for making disciples. And we've spent a lot of time as a church and as a staff studying how, how to make disciples. What does it look like to, to make disciples? And that's our whole vision is to be a church of people that just do this naturally, that, that, that we become people who naturally want to make disciples and the, the relationships that we build. And so if we're going to make disciples, we need to know what it looks like to make disciples. And so we've done literally a couple of years of study. And this has been, this has been our whole uh, vision ever since I've been here is to make disciples. And it honestly ought to be the mission and vision of every single church because that's the commission that was given to us by Jesus to go into the world and make disciples. And so, so we're putting all our chips on making disciples. And we keep coming back to it, trying to figure out how to best do that. And so we're in this series right now that's just going to give, it's really just an overview of the process, and then over the coming year and years to come, we're going to actually start to put some, some flesh into the process. So it's not just going to be this one step that I shared today, it's actually going to be a, you know, a month or two going through this in a, in a small group, we're calling them micro-communities micro with just two or three people to be able to build relationships at a point where you're able to, to follow Christ a little deeper. So that's kind of the overview of what the point of this series is. We've come, we've had two talks so far. The first one is, What is Love? And every time I, I say that, the, the Night at the Roxbury song gets in my head. <laughs> what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Now it's going to be in your head all day. <laughs> You're welcome. You can later today when you're singing that song, you say, thank me, thank me, send me a message, let me know that you're thinking about me or cursing me, um, whichever it is. So the first one was what is love? What is, what is the Bible's definition of love? What does it look like according to God, not according to the world, but what is love as God defines it? Because if we're going to be filled up with love, then we need to be filled up with God's love, not the world's love, or my love, or whatever it is. And last week we talked about motives. We have to have the right motive when we're coming to Christ. We cannot come to Christ for what we want to get out of Christ. We have to come to Christ to know Christ and to love Christ. That has to be the whole point of it. So, so we're calling that one the right motive, the right motive, or the right why. We have to have the right why behind why we're coming. It says, someone texted in, 6-8 isn't showing on the events. Yeah, it might be in just a minute, I was a little late getting it up. So, today, though, we're talking about the right identity. So, we have the right motive, the right motive in coming to Christ. The second part, I think the second phase, the second step of making disciples is the right identity. We have to have the right identity. And all of us, probably uh, all of us would know this, but you may not know this, but all of us have some false beliefs in the way that we think about ourselves that are driving how we live today. We have some false beliefs, we have some lies that we, that we have believed that we should not be believing about ourselves or about how the world works or about this or about that in relationship to our identity, and because we have these false beliefs about how everything is supposed to work, then we are driven by the wrong things. And I was thinking about this, I don't know if you've ever been distracted, anyone ever been distracted, like when you're driving, anyone ever been distracted, no one one wants to admit that they're distracted drivers, I'll admit that I can be a distracted driver from time to time, I try hard not to text while I drive because I know that's very distracting and I just don't want to end up on a commercial as an advertisement for a don't text and drive commercial, so that's my real ulterior motive in that but but there are times I don't know if you've done this, you know, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, so I'm I'm scrolling through my phone trying to find an episode of a podcast that I'm that I'm that I wanna listen to and I'm on the freeway, you know, only going about seven miles over the speed limit. And so, 77 miles an hour, you know, out there on I-5, nothing, nothing real dangerous, and, you know, I've got my hand on the wheel, and I've got my fingers scrolling through looking for this, doing this, and you'd be amazed at how long you can go without looking at the road. And has anyone ever not looked at the road long enough to think, I don't even know how I got here, <laughs> because I've been so distracted? For so long, right? It's like, it's like you've been driving, I've been driving for so long that right now I don't even realize that I am where I am because I've been so distracted for so long. And it doesn't just have to be looking at something different, but but when you're distracted, you can be just distracted in your mind, right? You can be distracted in the way that you think and your thoughts can you can go off on this bunny trail in your thoughts, right? And you can just kind of go all the way out in all these different worlds and different realms and different areas, and then you realize, oh, I'm driving a 2,000-pound vehicle going 80 miles down the freeway, I ought to pay attention to where I am so that I don't become someone who commits manslaughter. My wife just texted in, my kids need a father. (laughs) Pay attention while you drive. But distraction, distraction is a big deal. And, And distraction, I think, plays a huge role in our walk with Jesus Christ. Let me explain. I think if the enemy you know, we all have this enemy, we, we call him Satan. I don't even like to give him the credit of having a name. that's just a little, a little too much credit for him. But we have an enemy, and his, his chief objective is, what? Kill, kill, and destroy. Yeah, to steal, kill and destroy. He is the father of lies. lies. He is the chief deceiver, right? And so he's deceiver in chief of the whole planet. He's trying to deceive us. If he can get us distracted with something, you know, it's like when you're really good at lying, you know, you can come up with, with ways to, to lie that don't really sound like you're lying. Like, you can, you can get around the truth, Right? You you can come up. You can come up with ways that you're not not really telling a lie, but you're not really telling the truth, and that's why we have when you uh, testify in court, you have to tell what the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me, God, the whole truth. Like you can't just leave out parts of the story; it all has to be there. You can't, you know, lie by omission. Essentially, is a a part of that statement. But thinking, you know, if you are the master, if you are the 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 deceiver in chief, the chief deceiver of all of creation, the, the tactics and the abilities you would have in your, in your arsenal to be able to distract people with deceit would be great, right? It, it doesn't just have to come right in your face what some people would call, you know, uh, what, you know being attacked by Satan, right? You know, that's what you think, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm being attacked, and that, and that does happen. I'm not saying that's not a true statement, but, but that isn't the only way Satan works, That isn't the only way he tries to get us off track, and in fact, I think probably one of the the most harmful tactics in the arsenal both of Satan and in our fallen nature is this, this distraction with identity and the pursuit of identity. Because if we can get distracted just a little bit that our identity is this or our identity is that, then we can spend the rest of our lives pursuing a lie and not ever spend a moment of our lives pursuing the truth of what God says we are. That's why the culture that we're living in is just is just bubbling with with insanity at the moment. Because our culture lives in this world where where we our our own identity, we define who we are. And so we've chosen to define ourselves by race and sexuality and all of these things that actually have nothing to do with our identity. But we've made them the most important thing. And we say, I am this. And so it's no wonder we're so confused. It's no wonder there's so much chaos in the world right now. It's because everyone has saying, you know, and what, what happens is everyone says, this is the most important thing to me, but then you have someone else that says, well, no, this is the most important thing to me, and your important thing clashes with my important thing. So what do we do? Well, we have to fight about it. I mean, that's the only way to work it out, right? <laughs> So you know, we fight and we kill until everyone who disagrees with me is dead, and now my important thing is everyone's most important thing. Identity. We have some big false beliefs and false assumptions about our identity that are leading us as followers of Christ into very dangerous waters. They're leading us to do some very unchrist-like things because we have believed some false beliefs about who we are. And why we are who we are, but in our culture, identity is the moral absolute. It's your identity is the absolutely most important thing about our culture today. And we say you've got to be yourself, right? You just go. You got to be yourself. You got to go live and be go you know, who who you are, who you are on the inside, right? You know, so just go be you. Be you. You know the the world is your oyster, and go learn how to to be who you really are. But why it's such a big deal, I think, is because identity also happens to be at the heart of the gospel, and the, the two are in conflict. So if, if we're not who we are in Christ and who Christ says we are, then we are being distracted and deceived, and we're not really following Christ. But what is our culture's approach to identity? Uh, uh, an author by the name of Tim Keller, he's a great author, he's a, a, a re- I'm just a genius, I, th- I love reading him and, and listening to him, he's done, done some great work, and he talks about identity and so I want to share with you some of his thoughts this morning as we talk about identity so that you can help, help get you a better understanding because he's much wiser than I will ever be he talks about our culture's approach to identity. He says, most Christians are affected by it in a deep way without knowing it. So even though we're following Christ, we're still affected by the culture's approach to identity. So what is an identity? Well, an identity is a stable self-understanding, knowing who I am fundamentally. Self-regard, knowing how I feel about who I am. So an identity is knowing who you are and knowing how you feel about who you are. So let's talk about culture's approach to identity. Every culture, he says, gives you a framework uh, for how to shape your identity, and it pushes it on you in some way. So in non-Western cultures, we live in the Western culture, but in non-Western cultures, your identity comes to you based on your role and the family that you are a part of. They're familial cultures. They're based on the family. And so your identity comes from being a father, a wife, a grandfather, a son, a daughter, an uncle. You know, your identity comes from being a part of that family. That's where your identity is found. And if you fulfill that role well, if you do a good job at living up to that role in that culture, then you are a good person. And so a part of that culture then becomes self-sacrifice for the good of the family. You kind of lay down some of your own wants and desires for the good of the family because that's what that role dictates you must do. But in Western cultures, after World War II, we have totally reversed that. In our country, it was, it was pretty much that way up until World War II, and after that it kind of became the opposite, where we became the chief of our own identity. And now our identity and self-worth is not based on sacrificing ourselves and our self-interest and, the, and our self-desires for the good of the group. We actually become ourselves when we assert our desires in spite of of what our family or group around us tells us we should do, right? We, we find our identity when we chase the dream, right? When we're going after the dreams that we have in our heart, we will leave behind everything to chase that dream, and that is who we are because that is our identity. So we say things like, be yourself, look into your heart, follow your dreams. You know, I, be- I become myself as I realize my dreams, And because I decide who I am, well, then no one else has the right to tell me who I am. And that leads us to the idea of self-promotion. We have to promote ourselves so that the the identity that we're trying to achieve, the dreams that we're trying to achieve, we, we project that out on the world around us so that the world knows who we are so that we're not in danger of them telling us that we're not who we're supposed to be. And so, so we promote ourselves to the world in a certain way. We paint a picture of ourselves in a certain way. And I don't know if you're guilty of this, but I am 100% guilty of this, that you know, we, we don't post anything on Facebook unless it looks like we want our lives to look. You know what I'm talking about? It's like we, we, when, we, when we post something on Facebook, we run it through this filter of how is this going to make me look? I do. I do. How is this going to make me look as a father? How is this going to make me look as a husband? How is this going to make me look as a pastor? How is this going to make me look as a wannabe farmer and homesteader? You know, How are these things going to make me look? And if they're going to make me look bad, then I'm not going to post them because I want people to look on my life and see me in a certain way. And I'm, I'm sure no one else in this room is guilty of doing that, but I just confess to you that is something that, that I do. I edit my life before I share it with the public. But when you come to church, you get the real version. So you should just be here all the time because you know that I'm not the way that I portray myself to be on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) But I think there is a bit of a danger, and we're actually some point in time, we're going to do not a series or at at least a sermon on on technology and phones and all the dangers of it, because I think it's something that we actually need to start paying attention to. We're just kind of running with it and trying to keep up with it and not paying attention to what it's doing to us, and I think we need to stop and take a look at it to make sure that we're using it in a way that actually builds our relationship with God and doesn't take away from our relationship. But this editing idea has now driven us, I think, to actually pursue different things because they will look better when we post them online, right? I mean, we want to to push our idea of who we think we are onto the world so that they know we can self-promote ourselves, and so now I think it's actually changing our motives for why we're doing some of the things that we're doing because it will look better when we share it on Facebook or on Instagram or wherever it is that we share it. It's a very, very dangerous, dangerous way to live our lives. We need to be careful not to, not to, yeah, pastors have a responsibility in how they behave. They set an example. Thank you, I appreciate that. I'm trying to set a good example for you. I'm also trying to let you know that I am not perfect. But why are we doing what we do? Gail Sheave, in her book, Pacifism, she said, when you are moving away from institutional claims and other people's agendas, from external valuations and accreditations, you are, you are moving out of roles and into yourself. This was an older book. It's been out for a while. She's saying that when you start moving away from what people say you should do and you start moving out of the role they say you're supposed to live, then you're moving out of that and into who you really are. You're starting to find yourself. But in fact, this idea of finding yourself and becoming yourself and looking into your heart and following your dreams and all of those things, this is the only heroic narrative we have in our popular culture today. It's the only thing that's celebrated. It's the only thing that is exhorted and put up on a pedestal is, is finding yourself. That's what all of our movies, not all, of them most of our movies are kind of about this idea about going and being yourself, and the person who chases their dreams and sacrifices everything in pursuit of their dreams, and when they finally get it, even though they have no relationships and they've burned every bridge to get there, they're finally celebrated because they arrived where they wanted to arrive, they achieved their dream. So we say, I don't care what anyone else tells me I'm supposed to do, I don't care what the church or what God or society or culture tells me I have to do, I have to set my own course. And Habits of the Heart by Robert Ballet says, you have to look into your heart, see who you are, and express that. But if we're allowing culture to form and shape our identity, we better know what is going on, we better know some of the agenda, and we have to ask, are there any problems with the way... Our culture is trying to shape our identity. Are there any problems? Yes, there are mountains of problems. For one, it's incoherent. Culture's approach to identity is incoherent. Our deepest desires are rarely in harmony with anyone else's deepest desires. In fact, our deepest desires are rarely in harmony with our own deepest desires, sometimes at the very same moment, at least over a a spread out amount of time, our desires are in conflict with our own desires. So we don't even make sense to ourselves, right? We don't make sense in what we want for ourselves, let alone make sense in what we want for the other people around us or what they want of us. It's incoherent. There is no way for it to come together. And when your desires contradict, which one do you choose? So it's unstable. There's no way for this to actually survive and creating and producing an identity. It's also an illusion because culture changes. He gives this great, this, great, uh, this great illustration I want to share with you. So an Anglo-Saxon warrior, someone from a long time ago, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, you know, so he goes into culture, and he, he lives his life in a certain way, and he has, you know, he's very aggressive, and so in that culture, you know, if you're just aggressive and you just kind of have this, this aggression and you just kill somebody, you know, that's because that's what you do. That's just part of your culture. It's like, I'm just an Anglo, Anglo-Saxon warrior, so I just kill people, and that's okay. Right? It's okay for you to be aggressive as an Anglo-Saxon warrior, but if you have uh, undesirable sexual desires then your, your, your responsibility would be to, well, stuff that down, hide that. It's not, it's not acceptable in the culture that the Anglo-Saxon warrior is, so, so you don't embrace that, you pretend like that doesn't exist. But in the modern world, if there is someone who is very aggressive and they have a desire to go pound on people and beat people, we either pay them a million dollars or millions of dollars to do it on TV through fights and football, or they get sent to therapy because they shouldn't have these aggressive issues, right? That's what the culture tells us about being aggressive. But if you have these, these other sexual desires, well, then that is, that's your identity. That's who you are. You know, go, go and be you because that is who you are. And so culture has changed in the last several hundred years. Our culture has changed in less than a hundred years from telling us how to form and find our identity. How in the world can we finally arrive at being who we're supposed to be if the target is always changing? So how does identity come? Tolkien, he says, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Receiving praise from someone who is worthy of praise is above all rewards. And that's what we need. We need somebody. We need someone that we respect and adore who affirms us, right? We need someone who, who we respect and who is in and of themselves worthy of praise to praise us, to tell us who we are. And the only way we can get any kind of stable identity is by receiving praise from someone who is praiseworthy. Someone just said the Bible app is up, so you can go now on the Bible app and get the Scriptures for today. I encourage you to do that because we're going to have some very important Scriptures at the end of the sermon. Culture's approach to identity is crushing, right? You, you have to look into your heart and find yourself, and then you go out and achieve it. Your work is not just what you do, it's who you are, right? You think about this when you meet someone and say, you know, you, you say, I am a, you know, my, when I'm talking to people, I'll say, I am a pastor, and our work becomes our identity, And as long as what we do and how we perform is our identity, then we're going to constantly be crushed under the weight of performing and increasing our performance to look a certain way so that the world continues to see that we are becoming better and better at who we are, which is we've defined as what we do. So if you're successful, more power to you. In our culture, it means that you're great, you're brilliant, you're wise. But if you aren't, then you're a failure. You're not a real man or woman. If you don't succeed in your career, then you're a failure. Look at how woven this idea is into our culture. You know, you could look at probably almost any, any song lyric and find this idea of identity woven into it. But one of the older ones that, that is a great example is the one from Sound of Music, right? Climb every mountain. Ford every stream, chase every rainbow until you find your dream. And you know, we kind of we celebrate that. I mean, it's like this is kind of what we celebrate when it comes to, to, you know, going out there and being adventurous and being like all of us who came out to the West Coast or from people who descended from those who came out. It's like, go out there and find your piece of paradise, right? And so, so climb every mountain, ford every stream, chase every rainbow until you find your dream. But then what happens when you climb the wrong mountain? And you have to climb all the way back down and go, I mean, doesn't that sound exhausting and tiring? It's like, well, I climbed this mountain and it wasn't the wrong one, so I came down from the mountain and I forded a couple of strings, but I still haven't found anything that I'm looking for. So now I'm going to go chase some of these rainbows and see if I can find some semblance of identity, and if I can't, then I guess I'll just go back to the mountains and I'll live my life chasing all of this stuff, hoping that I someday find my dream. That's a problem, it's a big problem, and it's creating more problems. Franz Kafka says, the modern problem is we find ourselves sinful, but independent of guilt. We find ourselves sinful, but independent of guilt. And Robert Reiner says that in Bullets Over Broadway, a musical, he says, a true artist creates his own moral universe. And now some of the people we celebrate the most are the ones that have actually done that, and they're the ones that we're following. They've created their own moral universe, and we're trying to adopt their moral universe as our own. But where this is leading, we've already actually seen this start to take place in our culture and in our world today, is that we still feel guilty... Over things in our lives that don't measure up to certain standards. And so what we are trying to do now is to legislate away the guilt that we feel for feeling guilt about doing things. And you see this all across the country and all around the world, that we're trying to make things legal so that we don't feel guilty about doing them anymore. And it's just going to continue to spiral into a place where we are trying to legislate away our guilt, and yet it doesn't have any effect on how we actually feel about ourselves. So we have to ask the question what is Christ's alternative? First, Christ's alternative is not just getting religious. This is why the first two steps in making disciples are, are understanding your motives, having the right motives, and then understanding your identity, making sure you have the right beliefs. Because if we jump right from, you're now, okay, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, okay, here is all of the stuff you're supposed to do. What we do is we jump right to rules and regulations. What we do is we jump right to religion, and then we start to think that who we are is what we do. We haven't really gained any ground, we've just changed the objective from being me pursuing my own my own uh, wants and desires, to pursuing what I think is someone else's desires, but I'm still at the helm controlling my own destiny because I am doing the things that get me what I want. So we don't just jump right to rules and regulations and religion because that's not going to get us where Christ wants us. Religion says your identity is achieved, not received. Your identity is achieved, not received. I obey, therefore I am accepted. I do what I'm supposed to do, therefore I become acceptable to God. And if through religion I can do the right things, then I become acceptable to God, except the problem is we all know that that's not true, because if we could do that, Jesus would have never had to come. And so there's some big clash here that we have to understand. In fact, the opposite is true the Christian alternative, Christ's alternative, God's alternative. It happens to be the only alternative in all of the world from what we've been talking about. It's the only one that does anything different. All the religions of the world, all of the pursuit of all of humanity puts you in charge of your own identity, and you pursue it based on whatever you're given to pursue it. But in Christ, your identity is received not achieved. In Christ, your identity is received, not achieved. You receive your identity as a gift from Christ because He has given it to us. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. And because we have received this, we become accepted. And now that I am accepted, I am going to live my life the way that I am supposed to live it. Because I have received the gift, I want to live it out in my life. Every other system says if you follow the rules then you can have the stable sense of self. But it's the opposite in Christianity. First, in Christianity, you get a stable sense of who you are because Christ tells us who we are. And then we start to follow the rules. We have to start in the right place. We start with the right motives, and we have to start with the right beliefs. We have to root out all as best we can. We'll never do it on this side of eternity, but root out the wrong beliefs that are driving us in negative, unChrist-like ways, and replace them with the agenda and the identity of Christ, which says, you are this, so do that. Don't do this so you can become that, but you are this, and now you live that out. It's radical, isn't it? It's like It just sounds insane. It sounds crazy. It's like, how could this possibly work? How could this possibly be something that is true? If you look at Scripture, though, you will see this has been true all the way back at the very beginning, and it's true all the way through all of Scripture past the end. First, we start in Genesis chapter 1, where God says that he made us men and women in his image. God made us in his likeness, that's what it says. We're, we're made in the image of God, and so we start off by being made in the image of God. Our identity is that we look like him. Our identity is not that I can be me and the best me and whoever I want to be, but our identity is I look like God and that's who I am. I am who God says I am because he made me to look like him. I am his and he is mine. But then this thing happened called the fall and everything went awry, but you would think things would change. God wouldn't just give identity to people, but as we see throughout all of the Old Testament and even the New Testament, that God gives new identities to people. Let's look at the life of Abram which we don't actually know his name as that. Why don't we know his name as Abram? We don't say Father Abram. We say Father Abraham. What happened in the life of Abram that he went from being called Abram to Abraham? God gave him a new identity. God gave Abram a new identity and called him Abraham. Why? Because he would be the father of many nations. So God renamed Abram to Abraham because he would be the father of many nations. And this is such a great thing. I hope you catch what I'm about to teach you because it's really important for us to understand this, to really understand how identity in Christ and identity in the kingdom of God works because God gave Abraham his new identity, but then how long was it until that identity started to become fulfilled in his life? Twenty-five years passed before Isaac was born. That means that God said, you're going to be the father of many nations, and they spent the next 25 years not having any kids to prove that they would become the father of many nations. Take it even further. That was the one kid they had. Abraham tried to fulfill God's purpose in his own life in other ways, through Ishmael and all the other things, but then Isaac becomes the father of Anyone know? Jacob. What happens to Jacob? What does his name get changed to? Israel. Israel then becomes who? The, the, the people of God, which is the twelve tribes, right? The twelve tribes of, of Israel, which happens to become where all of these thousands and thousands of people. It took generations for Abraham's identity to become fulfilled, but he was still Abraham when God renamed him Abraham. Isn't that encouraging that, that, that you are who God says you are right when he says you are it, and you, even though your life may not quite look like it's supposed to look as you, as you continue on the process of sanctification and becoming who God says you are supposed to become, that even though your life may not exactly reflect what it's supposed to reflect, that you are still who Christ says you are right now because God named you That Jesus did it with Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16 through 18. It says, Simon Peter answered after Jesus had asked this question, Who do you say I am? Peter says, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you. And he uses his old name so that we know it was his old name, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter... And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus changed his name from Simon, son of Jonah, to Peter, which means a little rock. And if you look at the life of Peter, what happens to Peter? He becomes the one who sets out and builds the church, and he preaches the first sermon at Pentecost where thousands of people come to Christ. But it was a while before that came to fruition, and even the fulfillment of the church is still yet to be completed. Okay, so that's some stories of what God did with him, but what about what God says about us? Well, there's so much that I want to share with you that we can't really share at all, but for the next few minutes, I just want to read some of these statements to you, and I just want you to listen and receive then because your identity is received, not achieved. So when God says something about you in these passages, just receive that this is who I am, and this is who God's saying, this is who you are." Romans chapter six, verse six through 11. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him, so that the body ruled by, ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 Peter says you are a chosen people this is your identity this is who you are in Christ this is what God says about you you are a chosen people you are a royal priesthood have you done what's required to be a priest well well no but this is still who you are now we're going to start living this out you are A royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are this, so go do this. You are this, so live this way. This is who you are now living out. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Uh, I want to share a little bit more with you than I had in my notes. So, So, in Christ Jesus, listen, you are all children of God through faith. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So you are a child of God. You are a child of the God of the universe, the God who created it all, the God who built it all, the God who formed it all. This is who you are. This is your identity. You are A child of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. This, by the way, happens to also be the answer for all of the racial strife that exists on the entire planet. If we could just kind of come back to the gospel and what God says about who we are, if we could kind of get back to the heart of that, none of this would exist because when we are in Christ, then there is. Neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are God's child. You are, you are unified with all believers in Christ Jesus. And look what he says here. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise in other words, remember that guy Abraham who thousands of years ago I told would, would have this promise fulfilled in his life where he would become the father of many nations? If you belong to Christ, not only are you in Christ, but then you are also the, the fulfillment of that promise that I made thousands of years ago. That is, that is good stuff. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and... Heirs according to the promise, which we see elsewhere in Scripture, that we are co-heirs with Christ, that, that the Son who came and died, now we become co-heirs with Him. We sit next to Him. We receive the benefits that He receives. This is who you are. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished has poured out in abundance, has spent on us exuberantly without restraint. See what love the Father has put out on our lives in such a way that we should be called children of God. And in case you don't believe that, he's going to add one more, that is what you are. That's what you are. You are a child of God. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. So, yeah, we're not going to kind of mesh with all of the world around us. We are going to live, you know, in in contrast to the way the world lives. And the world won't really know who we are, and they won't really understand who we are because they don't know Him, so they can't really know who we are. But we are in Christ, so we know who one another are because we are all sons and daughters of the Lord Most High. Dear friends, now, we are children of God, And I love this, what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Right now you are a child of God, and what will be, we don't really know that yet because it hasn't been made known to, yet, but to us now, but, but we know that there is a will be that is coming and someday we will be something that we are not now, but we do know that when Christ appears we're going to be like Him and we shall see Him as He is, and so that's something that we can look forward to, but there is a not yet that is coming that we are walking and, and, and moving towards, but it's only becoming because we have received we are in Christ. Colossians chapter 3 verse 1 through 3 says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is. So because you have been raised with Christ, your identity is a resurrected person who has received new life. This is who you are. Set your heart on things above, which is where we're going to be talking about next week. Because you have received this, now go out and live this where Christ is seated at the right hand of God set your mind on things above not on earthly things for you died and listen your life is now hidden with Christ in God 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 this is one you probably all know therefore if anyone is in Christ the new creation has come The old has gone, the new is here. Isn't that encouraging? Doesn't that just kind of take the weight off of our shoulders? It's like... This weight I have to perform and present myself in a certain way so that the people around me don't judge me and put me down because I'm not living how I'm supposed to live. Well, the the weight isn't on you. The weight was on Christ, and he carried that weight to the cross, and now you receive your gift of your identity in Christ. Does that mean we can live however we want? No, absolutely not. We're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. But we receive our identity, and that gives us not only the motivation, but the power to live out that identity. Trying to live out this new identity in Christ in our own might is religion, and that will kill us. We will die under the weight of it all, but but living it out with the power of the Holy Spirit alive and active and at work in us, giving us the strength that we need to be able to live the way that we're supposed to live, this is how we become more and more like Christ. The old has gone. The new is here. So my question for us this morning is, who are you listening to when it comes to your identity? Who are you letting tell you who you're supposed to be? Who's got the voice in your, who is telling you this is what it means to succeed and this is what it means to fail? Who is the voice that's telling you, if you live this way, then you receive my approval, but if you don't, then you receive my rejection? Are you, are you listening to the right voice? Or are you just are you listening to all of the voices and whatever the new fad is that comes along and says, live this way and you will you will receive the approval that you're looking for and you do it and then you realize that that's empty and that's vain and that's fruitless and that doesn't produce what it, what you hoped it would produce and so, so you just go off in pursuit of the next thing and the next thing to try to find some kind of identity to put your hope and your rest in. Aren't you tired of chasing down identity? Why not instead of just chasing it and trying trying to get to it and finally get your hand on it, why don't you just sit still and receive it from God? Maybe instead of pursuing, trying to receive and earn on your own strength, you need to just start by rooting out the idea that that I can receive and achieve anything on my own. All I can do is sit and let God give it to me. And see, and I think this is what the whole of Scripture is trying to teach us, that the way the world thinks is in direct contrast to the way God thinks. The way the whole world around us is thinking is telling you, do this, earn this, and become this, no matter whether, whether it's in America or other cultures, even familial cultures that are talking about sacrifice and sacrificing yourself for the good of the family. You're still being driven by the idea of becoming a good father or a good mother. Stop pursuing and chasing these things and just let God tell you instead of striving to get it, just receive it, and then we'll start to achieve the life that we're supposed to be living. Who's been telling you who you are? Who is telling you what to do? Who is telling you what to chase? Because until we can start to root out that false belief that is, that is buried deep within us that says we can control our own destiny and we get to do whatever we want so that we can be who we think we're supposed to be, we're always going to be exhausted and drained and tired and without hope and discouraged and frustrated that we're not getting where we want to be. But if we can lay down our desire to control our own lives and just receive the life that God wants to give us, then there are great things that come out of that. Then the tree is good. Then the tree starts to be able to have even the ability to produce good fruit, right? As long as we're trying to control the tree, the tree is still bad because we're bad in our own nature. But once we let Christ give us the new tree, the new life in us, then the tree can start to produce good fruit. We can't produce good fruit from the bad tree that we once were. We can only produce good fruit from the good tree that we receive from Christ. We have to receive that so that we can produce that. We have to receive that deep down in the core of our being in our hearts so that out of the overflow of our hearts our lives spill out God's love on the world around us. Let's stand together. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? Nobody looking around, nobody nobody peeking, I just want to ask a question, and I would like for you to actually respond this morning. I know we don't do this very often, but I feel compelled to do this. If you're here this morning, I want to, I want to pray for all of us, I'm going to pray several prayers this morning, but if you're here this morning and you would say, I have been trying to live my life on my own terms and chase my own dreams and I'm, I'm tired, I am worn out of trying to pursue something and I'd like to lay that down this morning and just receive what God has for me if that's you, would you just raise your hand nobody's looking around several hands going up around the sanctuary if you're saying, I'm just tired of chasing something and I want to receive what God has for me, I want to pray for you you can put your hands down Heavenly Father, I thank You. I thank You that we don't have to do something to earn Your approval. I thank You that there isn't just an, an agenda that I have to perform these functions before You will approve me as Your son or daughter. But my approval comes through Christ. My approval in your eyes comes because I'm clothed in your righteousness. My approval in your eyes comes because I am hidden in Christ, that when you look at me, you don't see me anymore through my own filth and my own filthy rags of trying to work out my own salvation, but that now you see me clothed in the righteousness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for those who are here who are struggling under the weight of trying to perform in a certain way to achieve some kind of standard with you that this morning, right now, in this very moment, by the power of the Spirit that is alive and active and at work in this place and then active in their hearts, that they would now, from this point forward, lay down their, their pursuit of their own identity and now receive what you say they are. Father, I pray that you would help them to receive in this moment that they are your child, that they look on, that, that you look on them and see them as your son, that, that you look on them and see them as your daughter, that all of the things of the past and all of the fruitless efforts of trying to become and do and achieve something, that all of those, they, they make no difference because all you see is Christ in us, the hope of glory and that love now Compels us to live a certain way. Father, help them to lay down the pursuit of performing in a certain way so that they, could be achieve, that they could achieve something in you and that they could look a certain way to the world around them. Father, help us all to lay down that desire. Help us all to lay down the reins of controlling our image and trying to put, put out this look of we're this or we're that. Help us, Father, to lay that down once and for all this morning, to sacrifice that for the good of the kingdom, that we may no longer be pursuing things this world tells us to pursue, but that we may be in constant pursuit of knowing you more, that we would receive what you say about us, that that the moments that we feel lost, we know that that's not true because we are in Christ, so we're not lost, we are found. You've called us found. We, we're no longer lost out in, in the world, wandering and hoping to get somewhere, but we are found in you. I am found in you. I am found in Christ. This is where I am. I am found. I am no longer lost. And help us to receive that. Father, I pray. I pray against any spirit of religion that is in any one of us. And I pray that you would help us to lay that down once and for all this morning. Help us to lay down at the foot of the cross our desire to earn our own place with you. Help us to lay that down and just receive what you have for us so that we may actually, instead of trying to portray ourselves in a certain way, we may actually start to more and more look like and resemble the body of Christ that you've called us to be. That as we lay down our religion and we pick up our relationship with you, that we start to look more and more like Christ, that we start to look more and more like the Christ who saved us, the Christ who died for us, the Christ who rose from the dead and conquered death, hell, and grave, to give us the power of resurrection in our lives, that we might look more and more like that, not only to one another as we're gathered here, but out in an unbelieving world that needs so desperately the love of Jesus Christ, and that those who are searching for something and looking for something and seeking something that is that they're trying to fill in all these different ways as the world tells them that they would see us living our lives through your glory, for your kingdom, and that they would see Christ in us, the hope of glory, the Christ in us, their hope of glory. Not for our credit, not for our praise, not for anything we want to brag about, but that your name may be made known, and that you would build your kingdom through this church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.